Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Book 2, Chapter 8 of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams. Chapter 8. Monseigneur in the Country. A beautiful landscape, with the corn bright in it, but not abundant. Patches of poor rye, where corn should have been. Patches of poor peas and beans. Patches of most coarse vegetable substitutes for wheat. On inanimate nature, as on the men and women who cultivated it, a prevalent tendency towards an appearance of vegetating unwillingly, a dejected disposition to give up and wither away. Monsieur the Marquis, in his travelling carriage, which might have been lighter, conducted by four post-horses and two postilions, fagged up a steep hill. A blush on the countenance of Monsieur the Marquis was no impeachment of his high breeding. It was not from within. It was occasioned by an external circumstance beyond his control, the setting sun. The sunset struck so brilliantly into the travelling carriage when it gained the hilltop that its occupant was steeped in crimson. It will die out, said Monsieur the Marquis, glancing at his hands, directly. In effect, the sun was so low that it dipped at the moment. When the heavy drag had been adjusted to the wheel, and the carriage slid downhill with a cinderous smell in a cloud of dust, the red glow departed quickly. The sun and the marquis going down together, there was no glow left when the drag was taken off. But there remained a broken country, bold and open, a little village at the bottom of the hill, a broad sweep and rise beyond it, a church tower, a windmill, a forest for the chase, and a crag with a fortress on it used as a prison. Round upon all these darkening objects as the night drew on, the marquis looked with the air of one who was coming near home. The village had its one poor street, with its poor brewery, poor tannery, poor tavern, poor stable-yard for relays of post-horses, poor fountains, all usual poor appointments. It had its poor people, too. All its people were poor, and many of them were sitting at their doors, shredding spare onions and the like for supper, while many were at the fountain washing leaves and grasses and any such small yieldings of the earth that could be eaten. 
expressive sips of what made them poor were not wanting the tax for the state the tax for the church the tax for the lord tax local and tax general were to be paid here and to be paid there according to solemn inscription in the little village until the wonder was that there was any village left unswallowed few children were to be seen and no dogs as to the men and women their choice on earth was stated in the prospect life on the lowest terms that could sustain it down in the little village under the mill or captivity and death in the dominant prison on the crag heralded by a courier in advance and by the cracking of his postilion's whips which twined snake-like about their heads in the evening air as if he came attended by the furies monsieur the marquis drew up in his travelling carriage at the posting-house gate it was hard by the fountain and the peasants suspended their operations to look at him he looked at them, and saw in them, without knowing it, the slow, sure filing down of misery-worn face and figure that was to make the meagerness of Frenchmen an English superstition which should survive the truth through the best part of a hundred years. Monsieur the Marquis cast his eyes over the submissive faces that drooped before him, as the like of himself had drooped before Monseigneur of the Court, only the difference was that these faces drooped merely to suffer and not to propitiate, when a grizzled mender of the roads joined the group. "'Bring me hither that fellow,' said the Marquis to the courier. The fellow was brought cap in hand, and the other fellows closed round to look and listen in the manner of the people at the Paris fountain. "'I passed you on the road?' "'Monseigneur, it is true. I had the honour of being passed on the road.' "'Coming up the hill and at the top of the hill both?' "'Monseigneur, it is true.' "'What did you look at so fixedly?' "'Monseigneur, I looked at the man.' He stooped a little, and with his tattered blue cap pointed under the carriage. All his fellows stooped to look under the carriage. "'What man, pig, and why look there?' "'Pardon, Monseigneur, he swung by the chain of the shoe, the drag.' "'Who?' demanded the traveller. "'Monseigneur, the man.' may the devil carry away these idiots how do you call the man you know all the men of this part of the country who was he your clemency monseigneur he was not of this part of the country of all the days of my life i never saw him swinging by the chain to be suffocated with your gracious permission that was the wonder of it monseigneur his head hanging over like this he turned himself sideways to the carriage and leaned back, with his face thrown up to the sky and his head hanging down, then recovered himself, fumbled with his cap, and made a bow. What was he like? Monseigneur, he was whiter than the miller, all covered with dust, white as a spectre, tall as a spectre. The picture produced an immense sensation in the little crowd, but all eyes, without comparing notes with other eyes, looked at Monsieur the Marquis, perhaps to observe whether he had any spectre on his conscience. "'Truly you did well,' said the Marquis, felicitously sensible that such vermin were not to ruffle him. 
to see a thief accompanying my carriage and not open that great mouth of yours? Bah! Put him aside, Monsieur Gabelle. Monsieur Gabelle was the postmaster and some other taxing functionary united. He had come out with great obsequiousness to assist at this examination, and had held the examined by the drapery of his arm in an official manner. Bah! Go aside, said Monsieur Gabelle. "'Lay hands on the stranger if he seeks to lodge in your village to-night, and be sure that his business is honest, Gabelle. "'Monseigneur, I am flattered to devote myself to your orders.' "'Did he run away, fellow? Where is that accursed?' The accursed was already under the carriage with some half-dozen particular friends, pointing out the chain with his blue cap. Some half-dozen other particular friends promptly hauled him out, and presented him breathless to Monsieur the Marquis. "'Did the man run away, dolt, when we stopped for the drag?' "'Monseigneur, he precipitated himself over the hillside, head first, as a person plunges into the river.' "'See to it, Gabelle, go on.' The half-dozen who were peering at the chain were still among the wheels like sheep. The wheels turned so suddenly that they were lucky to save their skins and bones. They had very little else to save, or they might not have been so fortunate. The burst with which the carriage started out of the village and up the rise beyond was soon checked by the steepness of the hill. Gradually it subsided to a foot-pace, swinging and lumbering upward among the many sweet scents of a summer night. The postilions, with a thousand gossamer gnats circling about them in lieu of the furies, quietly mended the points to the lashes of their whips, the valet walked beside the horses, the courier was audible, trotting on ahead into the dun distance. At the steepest point of the hill there was a little burial-ground, with a cross and a new large figure of our Saviour on it. It was a poor figure in wood, done by some inexperienced rustic carver, but he had studied the figure from the life, his own maybe, for it was dreadfully spare and thin. To this distressful emblem of a great distress that had long been growing worse, and was not at its worst, a woman was kneeling. She turned her head as the carriage came up to her, rose quickly, and presented herself at the carriage door. "'It is you, Monseigneur! Monseigneur, a petition!' With an exclamation of impatience, but with his unchangeable face, Monseigneur looked out. "'How, then, what is it always petitions?' "'Monseigneur, for the love of the great God, my husband, the forester!' "'What of your husband, the forester? Always the same with you people. He cannot pay something.' He has paid all, Monseigneur. He is dead. Well, he is quiet. Can I restore him to you? Alas, no, Monseigneur, but he lies yonder under a little heap of poor grass. Well, Monseigneur, there are so many little heaps of poor grass. Again, well. She looked an old woman, but was young. Her manner was one of passionate grief. By turns she clasped her venous and knotted hands together with wild energy, and laid one of them on the carriage door, tenderly, caressingly, as if it had been a human breast and could be expected to feel the appealing touch. 
Monseigneur, hear me, Monseigneur, hear my petition. My husband died of a want. So many die of want. So many more will die of want. Again, well, can I feed them? Monseigneur, the good God knows, but I don't ask it. My petition is that a morsel of stone or wood with my husband's name may be placed over him to show where he lies. Otherwise the place will be quickly forgotten. It will never be found when I am dead of the same malady. I shall be laid under some other heap of poor grass. Monseigneur, there are so many. They increase so fast. There is so much want. Monseigneur, Monseigneur. The valet had put her away from the door. The carriage had broken into a brisk trot. The postilions had quickened the pace. She was left far behind, and Monseigneur, again escorted by the Furies, was rapidly diminishing the league or two of distance that remained between him and his chateau. The sweet scents of the summer night rose all around them, and rose, as the rain falls, impartially. On the dusty, ragged, and toil-worn group at the fountain not far away, to whom the mender of roads, with the aid of the blue cap without which he was nothing, still enlarged upon his man like a spectre, as long as they could bear it. By degrees, as they could bear no more, they dropped off, one by one, and lights twinkled in little casements, which lights, as the casements darkened, and more stars came out, seemed to have shot up into the sky, instead of having been extinguished. The shadow of a large high-roofed house, and of many overhanging trees, was upon Monsieur the Marquis by that time, and the shadow was exchanged for the light of a flambeau as his carriage stopped, and the great door of his chateau was opened to him. "'Monsieur Charles, whom I expect, has he arrived from England?' "'Monseigneur, not yet!' End of Book Two, Chapter Eight. Recording by Paul Adams. www.yongai.com. Book Two, Chapter Nine of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams. Chapter Nine: The Gorgon's Head. It was a heavy mass of building, that chateau of Monsieur the Marquis, with a large stone courtyard before it, and two stone sweeps of staircase meeting in a stone terrace before the principal door. A stony business altogether, with heavy stone balustrades, and stone urns, and stone flowers, and stone faces of men, and stone heads of lions in all directions, as if the gorgon's head had surveyed it when it was finished two centuries ago. Up the broad flight of shallow steps, Monsieur the Marquis, flambeau preceded, went from his carriage, sufficiently disturbing the darkness to elicit loud remonstrance from an owl in the roof of the great pile of stable-building away among the trees. All else was so quiet that the flambeau carried up the steps, and the other flambeau held at the great door, burnt as if they were in a close room of state instead of being in the open night air. Other sound than the owl's voice there was none, 
save the falling of a fountain into its stone basin for it was one of those dark nights that hold their breath by the hour together and then heave a long low sigh and hold their breath again the great door clanged behind him and monsieur the marquis crossed the hall grim with a certain old boar spears swords and knives of the chase grimmer with certain heavy riding rods and riding whips of which many a peasant gone to his benefactor death had felt the weight when his lord was angry avoiding the larger rooms which were dark and made fast for the night monsieur the marquis with his flambeau bearer going on before went up the staircase to a door in a corridor this thrown open admitted him to his own private apartment of three rooms his bedchamber and two others high vaulted rooms with cool uncarpeted floors great dogs upon the hearths for the burning of wood in winter-time and all luxuries befitting the state of a marquis in a luxurious age and country the fashion of the last louis but one of the line that was never to break the fourteenth louis was conspicuous in their rich furniture but it was diversified by many objects that were illustrations of old pages in the history of france a supper-table was laid for two in the third of the rooms a round room in one of the chateau's four extinguisher-topped towers a small lofty room with its window wide open and the wooden jalousie blinds closed so that the dark night only showed in slight horizontal lines of black alternating with their broad lines of stone colour my nephew said the marquis glancing at the supper preparation they said he was not arrived nor was he but he had been expected with monseigneur ah it is not probable he will arrive to-night nevertheless leave the table as it is i shall be ready in a quarter of an hour in a quarter of an hour monseigneur was ready and sat down alone to his sumptuous and choice supper his chair was opposite to the window and he had taken his soup and was raising his glass of bordeaux to his lips when he put it down what is that he calmly asked looking with attention at the horizontal lines of black and stone colour monseigneur that outside the blinds open the blinds it was done well monseigneur it is nothing the trees and the night are all that are here the servant who spoke had thrown the blinds wide had looked out into the vacant darkness and stood with that blank behind him looking round for instructions good said the imperturbable master close them again that was done too and the marquis went on with his supper he was half-way through it when he again stopped with his glass in his hand hearing the sound of wheels it came on briskly and came up to the front of the chateau ask who is arrived it was the nephew of monseigneur he had been some few leagues behind monseigneur early in the afternoon he had diminished the distance rapidly but not so rapidly as to come up with monseigneur on the road he had heard of monseigneur at the posting-houses as being before him he was to be told said monseigneur that supper awaited him then and there and that he was prayed to come to it in a little while he came he had been known in england as charles darnay 
Monseigneur received him in a courtly manner, but they did not shake hands. "'You left Paris yesterday, sir?' he said to Monseigneur, as he took his seat at table. "'Yesterday, and you?' "'I come direct. From London? Yes.' "'You have been a long time coming,' said the Marquis with a smile. "'On the contrary, I come direct.' "'Pardon me, I mean not a long time on the journey, a long time intending the journey. "'I have been detained by—' "'The nephew stopped a moment in his answer. "'Various business.' "'Without doubt,' said the polished uncle. "'So long as the servant was present, no other words passed between them. "'When coffee had been served and they were alone together, "'the nephew, looking at the uncle and meeting the eyes of the face that was like a fine mask,' opened a conversation. "'I have come back, sir, as you anticipate, pursuing the object that took me away. It carried me into great and unexpected peril, but it is a sacred object, and if it had carried me to death, I hope it would have sustained me.' "'Not to death,' said the uncle. "'It is not necessary to say to death.' "'I doubt, sir,' returned the nephew, "'whether, if it had carried me to the utmost brink of death, "'you would have cared to stop me there?' The deepened marks in the nose, and the lengthening of the fine straight lines in the cruel face, looked ominous as to that. The uncle made a graceful gesture of protest, which was so clearly a slight form of good breeding that it was not reassuring.' "'Indeed, sir,' pursued the nephew, "'for anything I know you may have expressly worked "'to give a more suspicious appearance "'to the suspicious circumstances that surrounded me.' "'No, no, no,' said the uncle pleasantly. "'But, however that may be,' resumed the nephew, "'glancing at him with deep distrust, "'I know that your diplomacy would stop me by any means "'and would know no scruple as to means.' "'My friend, I told you so,' said the uncle, with a fine pulsation in the two marks. "'Do me the favour to recall that I told you so long ago?' "'I recall it.' "'Thank you,' said the Marquis, very sweetly indeed. His tone lingered in the air, almost like the tone of a musical instrument. "'In effect, sir,' pursued the nephew, "'I believe it to be at once your bad fortune and my good fortune "'that has kept me out of a prison in France here.' "'I do not quite understand,' returned the uncle, sipping his coffee. "'Dare I ask you to explain?' "'I believe that if you were not in disgrace with the court "'and had not been overshadowed by that cloud for years past, "'a letter to Cachet would have sent me to some fortress indefinitely.' "'It is possible,' said the uncle, with great calmness. "'For the honour of the family I could even resolve to incommode you to that extent. "'Pray excuse me.' I perceive that, happily for me, the reception of the day before yesterday was, as usual, a cold one, observed the nephew. I would not say happily, my friend, returned the uncle, with refined politeness. I would not be sure of that. A good opportunity for consideration, surrounded by the advantages of solitude, might influence your destiny to far greater advantage than you influence it for yourself. 
but it is useless to discuss the question i am as you say at a disadvantage these little instruments of correction these gentle aids to the power and honour of families these slight favours that might so incommode you are only to be obtained now by interest and importunity they are sought by so many and they are granted comparatively to so few it used not to be so but france in all such things is changed for the worse our not remote ancestors held the right of life and death over the surrounding vulgar from this room many such dogs have been taken out to be hanged in the next room my bedroom one fellow to our knowledge was poniarded on the spot for professing some insolent delicacy respecting his daughter his daughter we have lost many privileges a new philosophy has become the mode and the assertion of our station in these days might i do not go so far as to say would but might cause us real inconvenience all very bad and very bad the marquis took a gentle little pinch of snuff and shook his head as elegantly despondent as he could becomingly be of a country still containing himself that great means of regeneration we have so asserted our station both in the old time and in the modern time also said the nephew gloomily that I believe our name to be more detested than any name in France. "'Let us hope so,' said the uncle. "'Detestation of the high is the involuntary homage of the low.' "'There is not,' pursued the nephew in his former tone, "'a face I can look at in all this country round about us, "'which looks at me with any deference on it "'but the dark deference of fear and slavery.' A compliment, said the Marquis, to the grandeur of the family, merited by the manner in which the family has sustained its grandeur. Ah! And he took another gentle little pinch of snuff, and lightly crossed his legs. But when the nephew, leaning an elbow on the table, covered his eyes thoughtfully and dejectedly with his hand, the fine mask looked at him sideways with a stronger concentration of keenness, closeness, and dislike than was comportable with its wearer's assumption of indifference. "'Repression is the only lasting philosophy. The dark deference of fear and slavery, my friend,' observed the Marquis, "'will keep the dogs obedient to the whip, as long as this roof, looking up to it, shuts out the sky.' that might not be so long as the marquis supposed if a picture of the chateau as it was to be a very few years hence and of fifty like it as they too were to be a very few years hence could have been shown to him that night he might have been at a loss to claim his own from the ghastly fire-charred plunder-wrecked ruins as for the roof he vaunted he might have found that shutting out the sky in a new way to wit forever from the eyes of the bodies into which its lead was fired out of the barrels of a hundred thousand muskets meanwhile said the marquis i will preserve the honour and repose of the family if you will not but you must be fatigued shall we terminate our conference for the night a moment more an hour if you please sir said the nephew 
We have done wrong, and we are reaping the fruits of wrong. We have done wrong, repeated the Marquis with an inquiring smile, and delicately pointing first to his nephew, then to himself. Our family, our honourable family, whose honour is of so much account to both of us, in such different ways, even in my father's time we did a world of wrong, injuring every human creature who came between us and our pleasure, whatever it was. Why need I speak of my father's time, when it is equally yours? Can I separate my father's twin brother, joint inheritor, and next successor from himself? "'Death has done that,' said the Marquis. "'And has left me,' answered the nephew, "'bound to a system that is frightful to me, "'responsible for it, but powerless in it, "'seeking to execute the last request of my dear mother's lips, "'and obey the last look of my dear mother's eyes, "'which implored me to have mercy and to redress, "'and tortured by seeking assistance and power in vain.' "'Seeking them from me, my nephew,' said the Marquis, touching him on the breast with his forefinger. They were now standing by the hearth. "'You will forever seek them in vain, be assured.' Every fine straight line in the clear whiteness of his face was cruelly, craftily, and closely compressed, while he stood looking quietly at his nephew, with his snuff-box in his hand. Once again he touched him on the breast, as though his finger were the fine point of a small sword, with which, in delicate finesse, he ran him through the body, and said, "'My friend, I will die, perpetuating the system under which I have lived.' When he had said it, he took a culminating pinch of snuff, and put his box in his pocket." "'Better to be a rational creature,' he added then, after ringing a small bell on the table, "'and accept your natural destiny. But you are lost, Monsieur Charles, I see.' "'This property and France are lost to me,' said the nephew sadly. "'I renounce them.' "'Are they both yours to renounce? France may be, but as the property, it is scarcely worth mentioning. But is it yet?' I had no intention, in the words I used, to claim it yet. If it passed to me from you to-morrow, which I have the vanity to hope is not probable, or twenty years hence, you do me too much honour, said the Marquis. Still, I prefer that supposition. I would abandon it, and live otherwise and elsewhere. It is little to relinquish. What is it but a wilderness of misery and ruin? Ha!' said the Marquis, glancing round the luxurious room. "'To the eye it is fair enough here, but seen in its integrity, under the sky and by the daylight, it is a crumbling tower of waste, mismanagement, extortion, debt, mortgage, oppression, hunger, nakedness, and suffering.' "'Ha!' said the Marquis again, in a well-satisfied manner. If it ever becomes mine, it shall be put into some hands better qualified to free it slowly, if such a thing is possible, from the weight that drags it down, so that the miserable people who cannot leave it, and who have been long wrung to the last point of endurance, may, in another generation, suffer less, 
but it is not for me. There is a curse on it, and on all this land. And you, said the uncle, forgive my curiosity, do you, under your new philosophy, graciously intend to live? I must do to live what others of my countrymen, even with nobility at their backs, may have to do some day. Work. In England, for example? Yes, the family honour, sir, is safe from me in this country. The family name can suffer from me in no other, for I bear it in no other. The ringing of the bell had called to the adjoining bedchamber to be lighted. It now shone brightly through the door of communication. The Marquis looked that way and listened for the retreating step of the valet. "'England is very attractive to you, seeing how indifferently you have prospered there,' he observed then, turning his calm face to his nephew with a smile. "'I have already said that for my prospering there I am sensible I may be indebted to you, sir. For the rest it is my refuge.' They say, those boastful English, that it is the refuge of many. You know a compatriot who has found a refuge there, a doctor? Yes. With a daughter? Yes. Yes, said the Marquis. You are fatigued. Good night. As he bent his head in his most courtly manner, there was a secrecy in his smiling face, and he conveyed an air of mystery to those words, which struck the eyes and ears of his nephew forcibly. At the same time, the thin straight lines of the setting of the eyes, and the thin straight lips, and the markings in the nose, curved with a sarcasm that looked handsomely diabolic. "'Yes,' repeated the Marquis. "'A doctor with a daughter. Yes, so commences the new philosophy. You are fatigued. Good night.' It would have been of as much avail to interrogate any stone face outside the chateau as to interrogate that face of his. The nephew looked at him in vain in passing on to the door. "'Good night,' said the uncle. "'I look to the pleasure of seeing you again in the morning. "'Good repose. "'Light Monsieur my nephew to his chamber there, "'and burn Monsieur my nephew in his bed, if you will,' "'he added to himself before he rang his little bell again "'and summoned his valet to his own bedroom. "'The valet, come and gone, Monsieur the Marquis walked to and fro in his loose chamber-robe "'to prepare himself gently for sleep that hot, still night.' rustling about the room his softly slippered feet making no noise on the floor he moved like a refined tiger looking like some enhanced marquis of the impenitently wicked sort in story whose periodical change into tiger form was either just going off or just coming on he moved from end to end of his voluptuous bedroom looking again at the scraps of the day's journey that came unbidden into his mind the slow toil up the hill at sunset the setting sun the descent the mill the prison on the crag the little village in the hollow the peasants at the fountain and the mender of roads with his blue cap pointing out the chain under the carriage that fountain suggested the paris fountain the little bundle lying on the step the woman bending over it and the tall man with his arms up crying dead i am cool now said monsieur the marquis and may go to bed so leaving only one light burning on the large hearth 
he let his thin gauze curtains fall around him and heard the night break its silence with a long sigh as he composed himself to sleep the stone faces on the outer walls stared blindly at the black night for three heavy hours for three heavy hours the horses in the stables rattled at their racks the dogs barked and the owl made a noise with very little resemblance in it to the noise conventionally assigned to the owl by men poets but it is the obstinate custom of such creatures hardly ever to say what is set down for them for three heavy hours the stone faces of the chateau, lion and human, stared blindly at the night. Dead darkness lay on all the landscape. Dead darkness added its own hush to the hushing dust on all the roads. The burial-place had got to the pass that its little heaps of poor grass were undistinguishable from one another the figure on the cross might have come down for anything that could be seen of it in the village taxes and taxed were fast asleep dreaming perhaps of banquets as the starved usually do and of ease and rest as the driven slave and the yoked ox may its lean inhabitants slept soundly and were fed and freed the fountain in the village flowed unseen and unheard and the fountain at the chateau dropped unseen and unheard both melting away like the minutes that were falling from the spring of time through three dark hours then the grey water of both began to be ghostly in the light and the eyes of the stone faces of the chateau were opened lighter and lighter until at last the sun touched the tops of the still trees and poured its radiance over the hill in the glow the water of the chateau fountain seemed to turn to blood and the stone faces crimsoned the carol of the birds was loud and high and on the weather-beaten sill of the great window of the bedchamber of monsieur the marquis one little bird sang its sweetest song with all its might at this the nearest stone face seemed to stare amazed and with open mouth and dropped underjaw looked awe-stricken now the sun was full up and movement began in the village casement windows opened crazy doors were unbarred and people came forth shivering chilled as yet by the new sweet air then began the rarely lightened toil of the day among the village population some to the fountain some to the fields men and women here to dig and delve men and women there to see to the poor livestock and lead the bony cows out to such pasture as could be found by the roadside in the church and at the cross a kneeling figure or two attendant on the latter prayers the lead cow trying for a breakfast among the weeds at its foot the chateau awoke later as became its quality but awoke gradually and surely first the lonely boar-spears and knives of the chase had been reddened as of old then had gleamed trenchant in the morning sunshine now doors and windows were thrown open horses in their stables looked round over their shoulders at the light and freshness pouring in at doorways leaves sparkled and rustled at iron grated windows dogs pulled hard at their chains and reared impatient to be loosed 
all these trivial incidents belonged to the routine of life and the return of morning surely not so the ringing of the great bell of the chateau nor the running up and down the stairs nor the hurried figures on the terrace nor the booting and tramping here and there and everywhere nor the quick saddling of horses and riding away what winds conveyed this hurry to the grizzled mender of roads already at work on the hilltop beyond the village with his day's dinner not much to carry lying in a bundle that it was worth no crow's while to peck at on a heap of stones had the birds carrying some grains of it to a distance dropped one over him as they sow chance seeds whether or no the mender of roads ran on the sultry morning as if for his life down the hill knee-high in dust and never stopped till he got to the fountain all the people of the village were at the fountain standing about in their depressed manner and whispering low but showing no other emotions than grim curiosity and surprise the lead cows hastily brought in and tethered to anything that would hold them were looking stupidly on or lying down chewing the cud of nothing particularly repaying their trouble which they had picked up in their interrupted saunter some of the people of the chateau and some of those of the posting-house and all of the taxing authorities were armed more or less and were crowded on the other side of the little street in a purposeless way that was highly fraught with nothing already the mender of roads had penetrated into the midst of a group of fifty particular friends and was smiting himself in the breast with his blue cap what did all this portend and what portended the swift hoisting up of monsieur gabelle behind a servant on horseback and the conveying away of the said gabelle double-laden though the horse was at a gallop like a new version of the german ballad of leonora it portended that there was one stone face too many up at the chateau the gorgon had surveyed the building again in the night and had added the one stone face wanting the stone face for which it had waited through about two hundred years it lay back on the pillow of monsieur the marquis it was like a fine mask suddenly startled made angry and petrified driven home into the heart of the stone figure attached to it was a knife round its hilt was a frill of paper on which was scrawled drive him fast to his tomb this from jacques end of book two chapter nine recording by paul adams www.yongai.com Book Two, Chapter Ten of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams. Chapter Ten Two Promises. More months to the number of twelve had come and gone, and Mr. Charles Darnay was established in England as a higher teacher of the French language who was conversant with French literature. In this age he would have been a professor, in that age he was a tutor he read with young men who could find any leisure and interest for the study of a living tongue spoken all over the world and he cultivated a taste for its stores of knowledge and fancy 
he could write of them besides in sound english and render them into sound english such masters were not at that time easily found princes that had been and kings that were to be were not yet of the teacher class and no ruined nobility had dropped out of tellson's ledgers to turn cooks and carpenters as a tutor whose attainments made the student's way unusually pleasant and profitable and as an elegant translator who brought something to his work besides mere dictionary knowledge young mr darnay soon became known and encouraged he was well acquainted moreover with the circumstances of his country and those were of ever-growing interest so with great perseverance and untiring industry he prospered in london he had expected neither to walk on pavements of gold nor to lie on beds of roses if he had had any such exalted expectation he would not have prospered he had expected labour and he found it and he did it and made the best of it in this his prosperity consisted a certain portion of his time was passed at cambridge where he read with undergraduates as a sort of tolerated smuggler who drove a contraband trade in european languages instead of conveying greek and latin through the custom-house the rest of his time he passed in london now from the days when it was always summer in eden to these days when it is mostly winter in fallen latitudes the world of a man has invariably gone one way charles darnay's way the way of the love of a woman he had loved lucy minette from the hour of his danger he had never heard a sound so sweet and dear as the sound of her compassionate voice he had never seen a face so tenderly beautiful as hers when it was confronted with his own on the edge of the grave that had been dug for him but he had not yet spoken to her on the subject the assassination at the deserted chateau far away beyond the heaving water and the long long dusty roads the solid stone chateau which had itself become the mere mist of a dream had been done a year and he had never yet by so much as a single spoken word disclosed to her the state of his heart that he had his reasons for this he knew full well it was again a summer day when lately arrived in london from his college occupation he turned into the quiet corner in soho bent on seeking an opportunity of opening his mind to dr manette it was the close of the summer day and he knew lucy to be out with miss pross he found the doctor reading in his armchair at a window the energy which had at once supported him under his old sufferings and aggravated their sharpness had been gradually restored to him he was now a very energetic man indeed with great firmness of purpose strength of resolution and vigour of action in his recovered energy he was sometimes a little fitful and sudden as he had at first been in the exercise of his other recovered faculties but this had never been frequently observable and had grown more and more rare he studied much slept little sustained a great deal of fatigue with ease and was equably cheerful to him now entered charles darnay at sight of whom he laid aside his book and held out his hand 
Charles Darnay, I rejoice to see you. We have been counting on your return these three or four days past. Mr. Stryver and Sidney Carton were both here yesterday, and both made you out to be more than due. I am obliged to them for their interest in the matter, he answered, a little coldly as to them, though very warmly as to the doctor. Miss Manette is well, said the doctor, as he stopped short, and your return will delight us all. She has gone out on some household matters, but will soon be home. Dr. Manette, I knew she was from home. I took the opportunity of her being from home to beg to speak to you. There was a blank silence. "'Yes,' said the doctor, with evident constraint. "'Bring your chair here and speak on.' He complied as to the chair, but appeared to find the speaking on less easy. "'I have had the happiness, Dr. Manette, of being so intimate here,' he at length began, "'for some year and a half, that I hope the topic on which I am about to touch may not—' he was stayed by the doctor's putting out his hand to stop him when he had kept it so a little while he said drawing it back is lucy the topic she is it is hard for me to speak of her at any time it is very hard for me to hear her spoken of in that tone of yours charles darnay it is a tone of fervent admiration true homage and deep love dr manette he said deferentially there was another blank silence before her father rejoined, "'I believe it. I do you justice. I believe it.' His constraint was so manifest, and it was so manifest, too, that it originated in an unwillingness to approach the subject, that Charles Darnay hesitated. "'Shall I go on, sir?' Another blank. "'Yes, go on.' you anticipate what i would say though you cannot know how earnestly i say it how earnestly i feel it without knowing my secret heart and the hopes and fears and anxieties with which it has long been laden dear dr manette i love your daughter fondly dearly disinterestedly devotedly if ever there were love in the world i love her you have loved yourself let your old love speak for me the doctor sat with his face turned away and his eyes bent on the ground at the last words he stretched out his hand again hurriedly and cried not that sir let that be i adjure you do not recall that his cry was so like a cry of actual pain that it rang in Charles Darnay's ears long after he had ceased. He motioned with the hand he had extended, and it seemed to be an appeal to Darnay to pause. The latter so received it, and remained silent. "'I ask your pardon,' said the doctor, in a subdued tone, after some moments. "'I do not doubt your loving Lucy. You may be satisfied of it.' He turned towards him in the chair, but did not look at him or raise his eyes. His chin dropped upon his hand, and his white hair overshadowed his face. "'Have you spoken to Lucy?' "'No.' "'Nor written?' "'Never.' "'It would be ungenerous to affect not to know that your self-denial is to refer to your consideration for her father. Her father thanks you.' he offered his hand but his eyes did not go with it i know said darnay respectfully 
how can i fail to know dr manette i who have seen you together from day to day that between you and miss manette there is an affection so unusual so touching so belonging to the circumstances in which it has been nurtured that it can have few parallels even in the tenderness between a father and child i know dr manette how can i fail to know that mingled with the affection and duty of a daughter who has become a woman there is in her heart towards you all the love and reliance of infancy itself i know that as in her childhood she had no parent so she is now devoted to you with all the constancy and fervour of her present years and character united to the trustfulness and attachment of the early days in which you were lost to her i know perfectly well that if you had been restored to her from the world beyond this life you could hardly be invested in her sight with a more sacred character than that in which you are always with her i know that when she is clinging to you the hands of baby girl and woman all in one around your neck i know that in loving you she sees and loves her mother at her own age sees and loves you at my age loves her mother broken-hearted loves you through your dreadful trial and in your blessed restoration i have known this night and day since i have known you in your home her father sat silent with his face bent down his breathing was a little quickened but he repressed all other signs of agitation dear dr manette always knowing this always seeing her and you with this hallowed light about you i have forborne and forborne as long as it was in the nature of man to do it i have felt and do even now feel that to bring my love even mine between you is to touch your history with something not quite so good as itself but i love her heaven is my witness that i love her i believe it answered her father mournfully i have thought so before now i believe it but do not believe said darnay upon whose ear the mournful voice struck with a reproachful sound that if my fortune was so cast as that being one day so happy as to make her my wife i must at any time put any separation between her and you i could or would breathe a word of what i now say besides that i should know it to be hopeless i should know it to be a baseness if i had any such possibility even at a remote distance of years harboured in my thoughts and hidden in my heart if it ever had been there if it ever could be there i could not now touch this honoured hand he laid his own upon it as he spoke no dear dr manette like you a voluntary exile from france like you driven from it by its distractions oppressions and miseries like you striving to live away from it by my own exertions and trusting in a happier future i look only to sharing your fortunes sharing your life and home and being faithful to you to the death not to divide with lucy her privilege as your child companion and friend but to come in aid of it and bind her closer to you if such a thing can be his touch still lingered on her father's hand 
Answering the touch for a moment, but not coldly, her father rested his hands upon the arms of his chair, and looked up for the first time since the beginning of the conference. A struggle was evidently in his face, a struggle with that occasional look which had a tendency in it to dark doubt and a dread. "'You speak so feelingly and so manfully, Charles Darnay, that I thank you with all my heart, and will open all my heart, or nearly so. Have you any reason to believe that Lucy loves you?' "'None, as yet none.' Is it the immediate object of this confidence that you may at once ascertain that, with my knowledge? Not even so. I might not have the hopefulness to do it for weeks. I might, mistaken or not mistaken, have that hopefulness to-morrow. Do you seek any guidance from me? I ask none, sir, but I have thought it possible that you might have it in your power, if you should deem it right, to give me some. Do you seek any promise from me? I do seek that. What is it? I well understand that without you I could have no hope. I well understand that, even if Miss Manette held me at this moment in her innocent heart, do not think I have the presumption to assume so much, I could retain no place in it against her love for her father. If that be so, do you see what, on the other hand, is involved in it? I understand equally well that a word from her father in any suitor's favour would outweigh herself and all the world. For which reason, Dr. Manette, said Darnay, modestly but firmly, I would not ask that word to save my life. I am sure of it, Charles Darnay, mysteries arise out of close love as well as out of wide division. In the former case they are subtle and delicate and difficult to penetrate. My daughter Lucy is, in this one respect, such a mystery to me. I can make no guess as to the state of her heart. May I ask, sir, if you think she is, as he hesitated, her father supplied the rest, is sought by any other suitor? It is what I meant to say. Her father considered a little before he answered. You have seen Mr. Carton here yourself. Mr. Stryver is here too occasionally. If it be at all, it can only be by one of these. Or both, said Darnay. I had not thought of both. I should not think either likely. You want a promise from me. Tell me what it is. It is that if Miss Manette should bring to you at any time, on her own part, such a confidence as I have ventured to lay before you, you will bear testimony to what I have said, and to your belief in it. I hope you may be able to think so well of me as to urge no influence against me. I say nothing more of my stake in this. This is what I ask. The condition on which I ask it, and which you have an undoubted right to require, I will observe immediately. I give the promise, said the doctor, without any condition. I believe your object to be purely and truthfully as you have stated it. I believe your intention is to perpetuate, and not to weaken, the ties between me and my other and far dearer self. If she should ever tell me that you are essential to her perfect happiness, I will give her to you. If there were, Charles Darnay, if there were, 
the young man had taken his hand gratefully their hands were joined as the doctor spoke any fancies any reasons any apprehensions anything whatsoever new or old against the man she really loved the direct responsibility thereof not lying on his head they should all be obliterated for her sake she is everything to me more to me than suffering more to me than wrong more to me well this is idle talk so strange was the way in which he faded into silence and so strange his fixed look when he had ceased to speak that darnay felt his own hand turn cold in the hand that slowly released and dropped it you said something to me said dr manette breaking into a smile what was it you said to me he was at a loss how to answer until he remembered having spoken of a condition relieved as his mind reverted to that he answered your confidence in me ought to be returned with full confidence on my part my present name though but slightly changed from my mother's is not as you will remember my own i wish to tell you what that is and why i am in england stop said the doctor of beauvais i wish it that i may better deserve your confidence and have no secret from you stop for an instant the doctor even had his two hands at his ears for another instant even had his two hands laid on darnay's lips tell me when i ask you not now if your suit should prosper if lucy should love you you shall tell me on your marriage morning do you promise willingly give me your hand she will be home directly and it is better she should not see us together to-night go god bless you it was dark when charles darnay left him and it was an hour later and darker when lucy came home she hurried into the room alone for miss pross had gone straight upstairs and was surprised to find his reading-chair empty my father she called to him father dear nothing was said in answer but she heard a low hammering sound in his bedroom passing lightly across the intermediate room she looked in at his door and came running back frightened crying to herself with her blood all chilled what shall i do what shall i do her uncertainty lasted but a moment she hurried back and tapped at his door and softly called to him the noise ceased at the sound of her voice and he presently came out to her and they walked up and down together for a long time she came down from her bed to look at him in his sleep that night he slept heavily and his tray of shoemaking tools and his old unfinished work were all as usual End of Book 2, Chapter 10, recording by Paul Adams, www.yornguy.com. Book 2, Chapter 11 of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams. Chapter 11, A Companion Picture. "'Sidney,' said Mr. Stryver, on that selfsame night or morning to his jackal, "'mix another bowl of punch. I have something to say to you.' Sidney had been working double tides that night, and the night before, and the night before that, and a good many nights in succession, making a grand clearance among Mr. Stryver's papers before the setting in of the long vacation.' 
the clearance was effected at last the striver arrears were handsomely fetched up everything was got rid of until november should come with its fogs atmospheric and fogs legal and bring grist to the mill again Sydney was none the livelier, and none the soberer for so much application. It had taken a deal of extra wet toweling to pull him through the night, a correspondingly extra quantity of wine had preceded the toweling, and he was in a very damaged condition, as he now pulled his turban off and threw it into the basin, in which he had steeped it at intervals for the last six hours. "'Are you mixing that other bowl of punch?' said Striver the portly, with his hands in his waistband, glancing round from the sofa where he lay on his back. "'I am. Now look here, I'm going to tell you something that will rather surprise you, and that perhaps will make you think me not quite as shrewd as you usually do think me. I intend to marry.' "'Do you?' "'Yes, and not for money. What do you say now?' "'I don't feel disposed to say much. Who is she?' guess do i know her guess i'm not going to guess at five o'clock in the morning with my brains frying and sputtering in my head if you want me to guess you must ask me to dinner well then i'll tell you said striver coming slowly into a sitting posture sydney i rather despair of making myself intelligible to you because you're such an insensible dog and you, returned Sidney, busy concocting the punch, are such a sensitive and poetical spirit. Come, rejoined Striver, laughing boastfully. Though I don't prefer any claim to being the soul of romance, for I hope I know better, still I am a tenderer sort of fellow than you. You are a luckier, if you mean that. I don't mean that. I mean I am a man of more, more... "'Say gallantry while you are about it,' suggested Carton. "'Well, I'll say gallantry. My meaning is that I am a man,' said Striver, inflating himself at his friend as he made the punch, "'who cares more to be agreeable, who takes more pains to be agreeable, who knows better how to be agreeable in a woman's society than you do.' "'Go on,' said Sidney Carton. "'No, but before I go on,' said Striver, shaking his head in his bullying way, "'I'll have this out with you. You've been at Dr. Manette's house as much as I have, or more than I have. Why, I have been ashamed of your moroseness there. Your manners have been of that silent and sullen and hangdog kind. That, upon my life and soul, I've been ashamed of you, Sidney.' it should be very beneficial to a man in your practice at the bar to be ashamed of anything returned sydney you ought to be much obliged to me you should not get off in that way rejoined striver shouldering the rejoinder at him no sydney it is my duty to tell you and i tell you to your face to do you good that you are a devilish ill-conditioned fellow in that sort of society you are a disagreeable fellow Sidney drank a bumper of the punch he had made, and laughed. "'Look at me,' said Striver, squaring himself. "'I have less need to make myself agreeable than you have, being more independent in circumstances. Why do I do it?' "'I never saw you do it yet,' muttered Carton. "'I do it because it's politic. I do it on principle, and look at me! I get on!' 
"'You don't get on with your account of your matrimonial intentions,' answered Carton, with a careless air. "'I wish you would keep to that. As to me, will you never understand that I am incorrigible?' He asked the question with some appearance of scorn. "'You have no business to be incorrigible,' was his friend's answer, delivered in no very soothing tone. "'I have no business to be at all that I know of,' said Sidney Carton. "'Who is the lady?' "'Now, don't let my announcement of the name make you uncomfortable, Sidney,' said Mr. Stryver, preparing him with ostentatious friendliness for the disclosure he was about to make. "'Because I know you don't mean half you say, and if you meant it all, it would be of no importance. I make this little preface because you once mentioned the young lady to me in slighting terms.' "'I did?' "'Certainly, and in these chambers.' Sidney Carton looked at his punch, and looked at his complacent friend, drank his punch, and looked at his complacent friend. "'You made mention of the young lady as a golden-haired doll. The young lady is Miss Manette. If you had been a fellow of any sensitiveness or delicacy of feeling in that kind of way, Sidney, I might have been a little resentful of your employing such a designation. But you are not. You want that sense altogether. Therefore I am no more annoyed when I think of the expression than I should be annoyed by a man's opinion of a picture of mine who had no eye for pictures, or of a piece of music of mine who had no ear for music. Sidney Carton drank the punch at a great rate, drank it by bumpers, looking at his friend. "'Now you know all about it, Sid,' said Mr. Stryver. "'I don't care about fortune. She is a charming creature, and I have made up my mind to please myself. On the whole, I think I can afford to please myself. She will have in me a man already pretty well off, and a rapidly rising man, and a man of some distinction. It is a piece of good fortune for her, but she is worthy of good fortune. Are you astonished?' Carton, still drinking the punch, rejoined, "'Why should I be astonished?' "'You approve?' Carton, still drinking the punch, rejoined, "'Why should I not approve?' "'Well,' said his friend Stryver, "'you take it more easily than I fancied you would, "'and you are less mercenary on my behalf than I thought you would be, "'though, to be sure, you know well enough by this time "'that your ancient chum is a man of a pretty strong will. "'Yes, Sidney, I have had enough of this style of life, "'with no other as a change from it. "'I feel that it is a pleasant thing for a man to have a home "'when he feels inclined to go to it. "'When he doesn't, he can stay away, "'and I feel that Miss Manette will tell well in any station "'and will always do me credit.' "'So I have made up my mind, and now, Sidney, old boy, I want to say a word to you about your prospects. You are in a bad way, you know. You really are in a bad way. You don't know the value of money. You live hard. You'll knock up one of these days and be ill and poor. You really ought to think about a nurse.' The prosperous patronage with which he said it made him look twice as big as he was and four times as offensive. "'Now, let me recommend you,' pursued Stryver, "'to look it in the face. "'I have looked it in the face in my different way. "'Look it in the face, you, in your different way. "'Marry. 
Provide somebody to take care of you. Never mind your having no enjoyment of women's society, nor understanding of it, nor tact for it. Find out somebody. Find out some respectable woman with a little property, somebody in the landlady way, or lodging-letting way, and marry her against a rainy day. That's the kind of thing for you. Now think of it, Sidney. I'll think of it, said Sidney. End of Book 2, Chapter 11, recording by Paul Adams, www.yongai.com. Book 2, Chapter 12, of A Tale of Two Cities, by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams. Chapter 12, The Fellow of Delicacy. Mr. Stryver, having made up his mind to that magnanimous bestowal of good fortune on the doctor's daughter, resolved to make her happiness known to her before he left town for the long vacation. After some mental debating of the point, he came to the conclusion that it would be as well to get all the preliminaries done with, and they could then arrange at their leisure whether he should give her his hand a week or two before Michaelmas term, or in the little Christmas vacation between it and Hilary. As to the strength of his case, he had not a doubt about it, but clearly saw his way to the verdict argued with the jury on substantial worldly grounds the only grounds ever worth taking into account it was a plain case and had not a weak spot in it he called himself for the plaintiff there was no getting over his evidence the counsel for the defendant threw up his brief and the jury did not even turn to consider after trying it striver c j was satisfied that no plainer case could be accordingly mr stryver inaugurated the long vacation with a formal proposal to take miss manette to vauxhall gardens that failing to ranelagh that unaccountably failing too it behoved him to present himself in soho and there declare his noble mind towards soho therefore mr stryver shouldered his way from the temple while the bloom of the long vacation's infancy was still upon it anybody who had seen him projecting himself into soho while he was yet on st dunstan's side of temple bar bursting in his full-blown way along the pavement to the jostlement of all weaker people might have seen how safe and strong he was his way taking him past Telson's, and he both banking at Telson's, and knowing Mr. Lorry as the intimate friend of the Manettes. It entered Mr. Stryver's mind to enter the bank, and reveal to Mr. Lorry the brightness of the Soho horizon. So he pushed open the door with the weak rattle in its throat, stumbled down the two steps, got past the two ancient cashiers, and shouldered himself into the musty back closet where Mr. Lorry sat at great books ruled for figures, with perpendicular iron bars to his window, as if that were ruled for figures too, and everything under the clouds were a sum. Halloa, said Mr. Stryver. "'How do you do? I hope you are well.' It was Stryver's grand peculiarity that he always seemed too big for any place or space. He was so much too big for Telson's that old clerks in distant corners looked up with looks of remonstrance, as though he squeezed them against the wall. 
the house itself magnificently reading the paper quite in the far-off perspective lowered displeased as if the striver head had been butted into its responsible waistcoat the discreet mr lorry said in a sample tone of the voice he would recommend under the circumstances how do you do mr striver how do you do sir and shook hands there was a peculiarity in his manner of shaking hands always to be seen in any clerk at tellston's who shook hands with a customer when the house pervaded the air he shook in a self-abnegating way as one who shook for tellston and company can i do anything for you mr striver asked mr lorry in his business character why no thank you this is a private visit to yourself mr lorry i have come for a private word oh indeed said mr lorry bending down his ear while his eye strayed to the house afar off i am going said mr striver leaning his arms confidentially on the desk whereupon although it was a large double one there appeared to be not half desk enough for him i am going to make an offer of myself in marriage to your agreeable little friend miss manette mr lorry oh dear me cried mr lorry rubbing his chin and looking at his visitor dubiously oh dear me sir repeated striver drawing back oh dear you sir what may your meaning be mr lorry my meaning answered the man of business is of course friendly and appreciative and that it does you the greatest credit and in short my meaning is everything you could desire but really you know mr striver mr lorry paused and shook his head at him in the oddest manner as if he were compelled against his will to add internally you know there really is so much too much of you well said striver slapping the desk with his contentious hand opening his eyes wider and taking a long breath if i understand you mr lorry i'll be hanged mr lorry adjusted his little wig at both ears as a means towards that end and bit the feather of a pen damn it all sir said striver staring at him am i not eligible oh dear yes yes oh yes you're eligible said mr lorry if you say eligible you are eligible am i not prosperous asked striver oh if you come to prosperous you are prosperous said mr lorry and advancing if you come to advancing you know said mr lorry delighted to be able to make another admission nobody can doubt that then what on earth is your meaning mr lorry demanded striver perceptibly crestfallen well i were you going there now asked mr lorry straight said striver with a plump of his fist on the desk then i think i wouldn't if i was you why said striver now i'll put you in a corner forensically shaking a forefinger at him you are a man of business and bound to have a reason state your reason why wouldn't you go because said mr lorry i wouldn't go on such an object without having some cause to believe that i should succeed damn me cried striver but this beats everything mr lorry glanced at the distant house and glanced at the angry striver here's a man of business a man of years a man of experience in a bank said striver and having summed up three leading reasons for complete success he says there's no reason at all says it with his head on 
Mr. Stryver remarked upon the peculiarity, as if it would have been infinitely less remarkable if he had said it with his head off. When I speak of success, I speak of success with the young lady, and when I speak of causes and reasons to make success probable, I speak of causes and reasons that will tell as such with the young lady, the young lady, my good sir said Mr. Lorry, mildly tapping the striver arm. The young lady, the young lady goes before all. Then you mean to tell me, Mr. Lorry, said Striver, squaring his elbows, that it is your deliberate opinion that the young lady at present in question is a mincing fool? Not exactly so. I mean to tell you, Mr. Stryver, said Mr. Lorry, reddening, that I will hear no disrespectful word of that young lady from any lips, and that if I knew any man, which I hope I do not, whose taste was so coarse, and whose temper was so overbearing, that he could not restrain himself from speaking disrespectfully of that young lady at this desk, not even Telson should prevent my giving him a piece of my mind. The necessity of being angry in a suppressed tone had put Mr. Stryver's blood-vessels into a dangerous state when it was his turn to be angry. Mr. Lorry's veins, methodical as their courses could usually be, were in no better state now it was his turn. "'That is what I mean to tell you, sir,' said Mr. Lorry. "'Pray let there be no mistake about it.' Mr. Stryver sucked the end of a ruler for a little while, and then stood hitting a tune out of his teeth with it, which probably gave him the toothache. He broke the awkward silence by saying, "'This is something new to me, Mr. Lorry. You deliberately advise me not to go up to Soho and offer myself, myself, Stryver of the King's Bench Bar?' "'Do you ask me for my advice, Mr. Stryver?' "'Yes, I do.' "'Very good. Then I give it, and you have repeated it correctly.' "'And all I can say of it is,' laughed Stryver with a vexed laugh, "'that this <laughs> beats everything, past, present, and to come.' "'Now understand me,' pursued Mr. Lorry. "'As a man of business, I am not justified in saying anything about this matter, "'for, as a man of business, I know nothing of it. "'But as an old fellow who has carried Miss Manette in his arms, "'who is the trusted friend of Miss Manette, and of her father too, "'and who has a great affection for them both, I have spoken. "'The confidence is not of my seeking, recollect. "'Now, you think I may not be right?' "'Not I,' said Stryver, whistling. "'I can't undertake to find third parties in common sense. "'I can only find it for myself. "'I suppose sense in certain quarters. "'You suppose mincing bread-and-butter nonsense. "'It's new to me, but you are right, I dare say.' "'What I suppose, Mr. Stryver, I claim to characterize for myself. "'And understand me, sir,' said Mr. Lorry, quickly flushing again. I will not, not even at Telson's, have it characterized for me by any gentleman breathing. There, I beg your pardon, said Stryver. Granted. Thank you. 
Well, Mr. Stryver, I was about to say it might be painful to you to find yourself mistaken. It might be painful to Dr. Manette to have the task of being explicit with you. It might be very painful to Miss Manette to have the task of being explicit with you. You know the terms upon which I have the honour and happiness to stand with the family. If you please, committing you in no way, representing you in no way, I will undertake to correct my advice by the exercise of a little new observation and judgment expressly brought to bear upon it if you should then be dissatisfied with it you can but test its soundness for yourself if on the other hand you should be satisfied with it and it should be what it now is it may spare all sides what is best spared what do you say how long would you keep me in town oh it's only a question of a few hours I could go to Soho in the evening and come to your chambers afterwards. Then I say yes, said Stryver. I won't go up there now. I'm not so hot upon it as that comes to. I say yes, and I shall expect you to look in tonight. Good morning. Then Mr. Stryver turned and burst out of the bank, causing such a concussion of air on his passage through that to stand up against it bowing behind the two counters required the utmost remaining strength of the two ancient clerks. Those venerable and feeble persons were always seen by the public in the act of bowing, and were popularly believed, when they had bowed a customer out, still to keep on bowing in the empty office until they bowed another customer in. The barrister was keen enough to divine that the banker would not have gone so far in his expression of opinion on any less solid ground than moral certainty unprepared as he was for the large pill he had to swallow he got it down and now said mr stryver shaking his forensic forefinger at the temple in general when it was down my way out of this is to put you all in the wrong it was a bit of the art of an old bailey tactician in which he found great relief you shall not put me in the wrong young lady said mr stryver i'll do that for you accordingly when mr lorry called that night as late as ten o'clock mr stryver among a quantity of books and papers littered out for the purpose seemed to have nothing less on his mind than the subject of the morning he even showed surprise when he saw mr lorry and was altogether in an absent and preoccupied state well said that good-natured emissary after a full half-hour of bootless attempts to bring him round to the question i've been to soho to soho repeated mr stryver coldly oh to be sure what am i thinking of and i have no doubt said mr lorry that i was right in the conversation we had my opinion is confirmed and i reiterate my advice i assure you returned mr stryver in the friendliest way that i am sorry for it on your account and sorry for it on the poor father's account i know this must always be a sore subject with the family let us say no more about it i don't understand you said mr lorry i dare say not rejoined stryver nodding his head in a smoothing and final way no matter no matter but it does matter mr lorry urged no it doesn't i assure you it doesn't having supposed that there was sense where there is no sense and a laudable ambition where there is not a laudable ambition i am well out of my mistake and no harm is done 
Young women have committed similar foibles often before, and have repented them in poverty and obscurity often before. In an unselfish aspect, I am sorry that the thing is dropped, because it would have been a bad thing for me in a worldly point of view. In a selfish aspect, I am glad that the thing is dropped, because it would have been a bad thing for me in a worldly point of view. It is hardly necessary to say I could have gained nothing by it. There is no harm at all done. I have not proposed to the young lady, and, between ourselves, I am by no means certain, on reflection, that I ever should have committed myself to that extent. Mr. Lorry, you cannot control the mincing vanities and giddiness of empty-headed girls. You must not expect to do it, or you will always be disappointed. Now, pray say no more about it. I tell you, I regret it on account of others, but I am satisfied on my own account. And I am really very much obliged to you for allowing me to sound you, and for giving me your advice. You know the young lady better than I do. You were right. It never would have done." Mr. Lorry was so taken aback that he looked quite stupidly at Mr. Stryver, shouldering him towards the door, with an appearance of showering generosity, forbearance, and goodwill on his erring head. "'Make the best of it, my dear sir,' said Stryver. "'Say no more about it. Thank you again for allowing me to sound you. Good night.' Mr. Lorry was out in the night before he knew where he was. Mr. Stryver was lying back on his sofa, winking at his ceiling. End of Book 2, Chapter 12 Recording by Paul Adams, www.yawnguy.com Book 2, Chapter 13 of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams Chapter 13 The Fellow of No Delicacy If Sidney Carton ever shone anywhere, he certainly never shone in the house of Dr. Manette. He had been there often, during a whole year, and had always been the same moody and morose lounger there. When he cared to talk, he talked well, but the cloud of caring for nothing, which overshadowed him with such a fatal darkness, was very rarely pierced by the light within him and yet he did care something for the streets that environed that house and for the senseless stones that made their pavements many a night he vaguely and unhappily wandered there when wine had brought no transitory gladness to him many a dreary daybreak revealed his solitary figure lingering there and still lingering there when the first beams of the sun brought into strong relief removed beauties of architecture in spires of churches and lofty buildings as perhaps the quiet time brought some sense of better things else forgotten and unattainable into his mind of late the neglected bed in the temple court had known him more scantily than ever and often when he had thrown himself upon it no longer than a few minutes he had got up again and haunted that neighbourhood on a day in august when mr stryver after notifying to his jackal that he had thought better of that marrying matter 
had carried his delicacy into devonshire and when the sight and scent of flowers in the city streets had some waifs of goodness in them for the worst of health for the sickliest and of youth for the oldest sidney's feet still trod those stones from being irresolute and purposeless his feet became animated by an intention and in the working out of that intention they took him to the doctor's door he was shown upstairs and found lucy at her work alone she had never been quite at her ease with him and received him with some little embarrassment as he seated himself near her table but looking up at his face in the interchange of the first few commonplaces she observed a change in it i fear you are not well mr carton no but the life i lead miss manette is not conducive to health what is to be expected of or by such profligates is it not for, forgive me i have begun the question on my lips a pity to live no better life god knows it is a shame then why not change it looking gently at him again she was surprised and saddened to see that there were tears in his eyes there were tears in his voice too as he answered it is too late for that i shall never be better than i am i shall sink lower and be worse he leaned an elbow on her table and covered his eyes with his hand the table trembled in the silence that followed she had never seen him softened and was much distressed he knew her to be so without looking at her and said pray forgive me miss manette i break down before the knowledge of what i want to say to you will you hear me if it will do you any good mr carton if it would make you happier it would make me very glad god bless you for your sweet compassion he unshaded his face after a little while and spoke steadily don't be afraid to hear me don't shrink from anything i say i am like one who died young all my life might have been no mr carton i am sure that the best part of it might still be i am sure that you might be much much worthier of yourself say of you miss manette and although i know better although in the mystery of my own wretched heart i know better i shall never forget it she was pale and trembling he came to her relief with a fixed despair of himself which made the interview unlike any other that could have been holden if it had been possible miss manette that you could have returned the love of the man you see before you flung away wasted drunken poor creature of misuse as you know him to be he would have been conscious this day and hour in spite of his happiness that he would bring you to misery bring you to sorrow and repentance blight you disgrace you pull you down with him i know very well that you can have no tenderness for me i ask for none i am even thankful that it cannot be without it can i not save you mr carton can i not recall you forgive me again to a better course can i in no way repay your confidence i know this is a confidence she modestly said after a little hesitation and in earnest tears i know you would say this to no one else can i turn it to no good account for yourself mr carton he shook his head to none no miss manette to none if you will hear me through a very little more all you can ever do for me is done i wish you to know that you have been the last dream of my soul 
in my degradation i have not been so degraded but that the sight of you with your father and of this home made such a home by you has stirred old shadows that i thought had died out of me since i knew you i have been troubled by a remorse that i thought would never reproach me again and have heard whispers from old voices impelling me upward that i thought were silent for ever i have had unformed ideas of striving afresh beginning anew shaking off sloth and sensuality and fighting out the abandoned fight a dream all a dream that ends in nothing and leaves the sleeper where he lays down but i wish you to know that you inspired it will nothing of it remain oh mr carton think again try again no miss manette all through it i have known myself to be quite undeserving and yet i have had the weakness and have still the weakness to wish you to know with what a sudden mastery you kindled me heap of ashes that i am into fire a fire however inseparable in its nature from myself quickening nothing lighting nothing doing no service idly burning away since it is my misfortune mr carton to have made you more unhappy than you were before you knew me don't say that miss manette for you would have reclaimed me if anything could you will not be the cause of my becoming worse since the state of your mind that you describe is at all events attributable to some influence of mine this is what i mean if i can make it plain can i use no influence to serve you have i no power for good with you at all the utmost good that i am capable of now miss manette i have come here to realize let me carry through the rest of my misdirected life the remembrance that i opened my heart to you last of all the world and that there was something left in me at this time which you could deplore and pity which i entreated you to believe again and again most fervently with all my heart was capable of better things mr carton entreat me to believe it no more miss manette i have proved myself and i know better i distress you i draw fast to an end will you let me believe when i recall this day that the last confidence of my life was reposed in your pure and innocent breast and that it lies there alone and will be shared by no one if that will be a consolation to you yes not even by the dearest one ever to be known to you mr carton she answered after an agitated pause the secret is yours not mine and i promise to respect it thank you and again god bless you he put her hand to his lips and moved towards the door be under no apprehension miss manette of my ever resuming this conversation by so much as a passing word i will never refer to it again if i were dead that could not be surer than it is henceforth in the hour of my death i shall hold sacred the one good remembrance and shall thank and bless you for it that my last avowal of myself was made to you and that my name and faults and miseries were gently carried in your heart may it otherwise be light and happy he was so unlike what he had ever shown himself to be and it was so sad to think how much he had thrown away and how much he every day kept down and perverted that lucy manette wept mournfully for him as he stood looking back at her
"'Be comforted,' he said. "'I am not worth such feeling, Miss Manette. "'An hour or two hence, and the low companions "'and low habits that I scorn but yield to "'will render me less worth such tears as those "'than any wretch who creeps along the streets. "'Be comforted, but within myself I shall always be towards you "'what I am now, though outwardly I shall be "'what you have heretofore seen me.' the last supplication but one i make to you is that you will believe this of me i will mr carton my last supplication of all is this and with it i will relieve you of a visitor with whom i well know you have nothing in unison and between whom and you there is an impassable space it is useless to say it i know but it rises out of my soul for you and any dear to you i would do anything if my career were of that better kind that there was any opportunity or capacity of sacrifice in it i would embrace any sacrifice for you and for those dear to you try to hold me in your mind some quiet times as ardent and sincere in this one thing the time will come the time will not be long in coming when new ties will be formed about you ties that will bind you yet more tenderly and strongly to the home you so adorn the dearest ties that will ever grace and gladden you oh miss manette when the little picture of a happy father's face looks up in yours when you see your own bright beauty springing up anew at your feet think now and then that there is a man who would give his life to keep a life you love beside you he said farewell said at last god bless you and left her end of book two chapter thirteen Recording by Paul Adams and www.yornguy.com Book 2, Chapter 14 Of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams Chapter 14 The Honest Tradesman to the eyes of Mr. Jeremiah Cruncher, sitting on his stall in Fleet Street with his grisly urchin beside him, a vast number and variety of objects in movement were every day presented. Who could sit upon anything in Fleet Street during the busy hours of the day, and not be dazed and deafened, by two immense processions, one ever tending westward with the sun, the other ever tending eastward from the sun, both ever tending to the plains beyond the range of red and purple, where the sun goes down? with his straw in his mouth mr cruncher sat watching the two streams like the heathen rustic who has for several centuries been on duty watching one stream saving that jerry had no expectation of their ever running dry nor would it have been an expectation of a hopeful kind since a small part of his income was derived from the pilotage of timid women mostly of a full habit and past the middle term of life from telson's side of the tides to the opposite its shore brief as such companionship was in every separate instance mr cruncher never failed to become so interested in the lady as to express a strong desire to have the honour of drinking her very good health and it was from the gifts bestowed upon him towards the execution of this benevolent purpose that he recruited his finances as just now observed 
Time was when a poet sat upon a stool in a public place and mused in the sight of men. Mr. Cruncher, sitting on a stool in a public place, but not being a poet, mused as little as possible and looked about him. It fell out that he was thus engaged in a season when crowds were few, and belated women few, and when his affairs in general were so unprosperous as to awaken a strong suspicion in his breast that Mrs. Cruncher must have been flopping in some pointed manner, when an unusual concourse pouring down Fleet Street westward attracted his attention. Looking that way, Mr. Cruncher made out that some kind of funeral was coming along, and that there was popular objection to this funeral, which engendered uproar. "'Young Jerry,' said Mr. Cruncher, turning to his offspring, "'it's a buryin'!' "'Hurrah, father!' cried young Jerry. The young gentleman uttered this exultant sound with mysterious significance. The elder gentleman took the cry so ill that he watched his opportunity and smote the young gentleman on the ear. "'What do you mean? What are you hoo-roaring at? What do you want to come way to your own father, you young rip? This boy's a-getting too many for me,' said Mr. Cruncher, surveying him. "'Him and his hoo-roars! Don't let me hear no more of you, or you shall feel some more of me, do you hear?' "'I want doing no harm,' young Jerry protested, rubbing his cheek. "'Drop it, then,' said Mr. Cruncher. "'I won't have none of your no-arms. Get atop of that there seat and look at the crowd.' His son obeyed, and the crowd approached. They were bawling and hissing round a dingy hearse and dingy morning-coach, in which morning-coach there was only one mourner, dressed in the dingy trappings that were considered essential to the dignity of the position. The position appeared by no means to please him, however, with an increasing rabble surrounding the coach, deriding him, making grimaces at him, and incessantly groaning, and calling out, "'Ya, spies!' Yah, yah, spies, with many compliments too numerous and forcible to repeat. Funerals had at all times a remarkable attraction for Mr. Cruncher. He always pricked up his senses and became excited when a funeral passed Telson's. Naturally, therefore, a funeral with this uncommon attendance excited him greatly, and he asked of the first man who ran against him, "'What is it, brother? What's it about?' "'I don't know,' said the man. "'Spies! Yah, yah! Spies!' He asked another man. "'Who is it?' "'I don't know,' returned the man, clapping his hands to his mouth nevertheless, and vociferating in a surprising heat, and with the greatest ardour. "'Spies! Yah, yah! Spies!' At length a person better informed on the merits of the case tumbled against him, and from this person he learned that the funeral was the funeral of one Roger Cly. "'Was he a spy?' asked Mr. Cruncher. "'Old Bailey spy,' returned his informant. "'Yah, yah, yah, old Bailey spies!' "'Why, to be sure!' exclaimed Jerry, recalling the trial at which he had assisted. "'I've seen him. Dead, is he?' "'Dead as mutton,' returned the other, "'and can't be too dead. Have em out, they're spies! Pull em out, they're spies!' 
The idea was so acceptable in the prevalent absence of any idea that the crowd caught it up with eagerness, and loudly repeating the suggestion to have em out and to pull em out, mobbed the two vehicles so closely that they came to a stop. On the crowd's opening the coach doors, the one mourner scuffled out of himself and was in their hands for a moment, but he was so alert and made such good use of his time that in another moment he was scouring away up a by-street after shedding his cloak, hat, long hat-band, white pocket-handkerchief, and other symbolical tears. These the people tore to pieces, and scattered far and wide with great enjoyment, while the tradesmen hurriedly shut up their shops, for a crowd in those times stopped at nothing, and was a monster much dreaded. They had already got the length of opening the hearse to take the coffin out, when some brighter genius proposed instead its being escorted to its destination amidst general rejoicing practical suggestions being much needed this suggestion too was received with acclamation and the coach was immediately filled with eight inside and a dozen out while as many people got on the roof of the hearse as could by any exercise of ingenuity stick upon it among the first of these volunteers was jerry cruncher himself who modestly concealed his spiky head from the observation of tellson's in the further corner of the morning coach the officiating undertakers made some protest against these changes in the ceremonies but the river being alarmingly near and several voices remarking on the efficacy of cold immersion in bringing refractory members of the profession to reason the protest was faint and brief the remodelled procession started with a chimney-sweep driving the hearse advised by the regular driver who was perched beside him under close inspection for the purpose and with a pie-man also attended by his cabinet minister driving the morning coach a bear leader a popular street character of the time was impressed as an additional ornament before the cavalcade had gone far down the strand and his bear who is black and very mangy gave quite an undertaking air to that part of the procession in which he walked thus with beer-drinking pipe-smoking song-roaring and infinite caricaturing of woe the disorderly procession went its way recruiting at every step and all the shops shutting up before it its destination was the old church of st pancras far off in the fields it got there in course of time insisted on pouring into the burial-ground finally accomplished the interment of the deceased roger cly in its own way and highly to its own satisfaction the dead man disposed of and the crowd being under the necessity of providing some other entertainment for itself another brighter genius or perhaps the same conceived the humour of impeaching casual passers-by as old bailey spies and wreaking vengeance on them chase was given to some scores of inoffensive persons who had never been near the old bailey in their lives in the realization of this fancy and they were roughly hustled and maltreated the transition to the sport of window-breaking and thence to the plundering of public houses was easy and natural at last after several hours when sundry summer-houses had been pulled down and some area railings had been torn up to arm the more belligerent spirits a rumour got about that the guards were coming 
before this rumour the crowd gradually melted away and perhaps the guards came and perhaps they never came and this was the usual progress of a mob mr cruncher did not assist at the closing sports but had remained behind in the churchyard to confer and condole with the undertakers the place had a soothing influence on him he procured a pipe from a neighbouring public-house and smoked it looking in at the railings and maturely considering the spot jerry said mr cruncher apostrophizing himself in his usual way you see that there cly that day and you see with your own eyes that he was a young un and a straight maiden having smoked his pipe out and ruminated a little longer he turned himself about that he might appear before the hour of closing on his station at tellson's whether his meditations on mortality had touched his liver or whether his general health had been previously at all amiss or whether he desired to show a little attention to an eminent man is not so much to the purpose as that he made a short call upon his medical adviser a distinguished surgeon on his way back young jerry relieved his father with dutiful interest and reported no job in his absence the bank closed the ancient clerks came out the usual watch was set and mr cruncher and his son went home to tea now i tell you where it is said mr cruncher to his wife on entering if as an honest tradesman me winters goes wrong to-night i shall make sure that you've been praying again me and i shall work you for it just the same as if i seen you do it the dejected mrs cruncher shook her head why you're at it afore my face said mr cruncher with signs of angry apprehension i'm saying nothing well then don't meditate nothing you might as well flop as meditate you may as well go again me one way as another drop it altogether yes jerry yes jerry repeated mr cruncher sitting down to tea ah it is yes jerry that's about it you may say yes jerry mr cruncher had no particular meaning in these sulky corroborations but made use of them as people not unfrequently do to express general ironical dissatisfaction you and your yes jerry said mr cruncher taking a bite out of his bread and butter and seeming to help it down with a large invisible oyster out of his saucer ah i think so i believe you you're going out to-night asked his decent wife when he took another bite yes i am may i go with you father asked his son briskly no you mayn't i'm a-going as your mother knows a-fishing that's where i'm going to going a-fishing your fishing rod get rather rusty don't it father never you mind shall you bring any fish home father if i don't you'll have short commons to-morrow returned that gentleman shaking his head that's questions enough for you i ain't a-going out till you've been long abed he devoted himself during the remainder of the evening to keeping a most vigilant watch on Mrs. Cruncher, and sullenly holding her in conversation that she might be prevented from meditating any petitions to his disadvantage. 
with this view he urged his son to hold her in conversation also and led the unfortunate woman a hard life by dwelling on any causes of complaint he could bring against her rather than he would leave her for a moment to her own reflections the devoutest person could have rendered no greater homage to the efficacy of an honest prayer than he did in this distrust of his wife it was as if a professed unbeliever in ghosts should be frightened by a ghost story and mind you said mr cruncher no games to-morrow if i as an honest tradesman succeed in providing a gint of meat or two none of your not touching of it and sticking to bread if i as an honest tradesman am able to provide a little beer none of your declaring on water when you go to rome do as rome does rome will be an ugly customer to you if you don't i'm your rome you know then he began grumbling again with your flying into the face of your own whittles and drink i don't know how scarce you mayn't make the whittles and drink here by your flopping tricks and your unfeeling conduct look at your boy he is yon ain't he he's as thin as a lathe do you call yourself a mother and not know that a mother's first duty is to blow her boy out this touched young jerry on a tender place who adjured his mother to perform her first duty and whatever else she did or neglected above all things to lay especial stress on the discharge of that maternal function so affectingly and delicately indicated by his other parent thus the evening wore away with the cruncher family until young jerry was ordered to bed and his mother laid under similar injunctions obeyed them mr cruncher beguiled the earlier watches of the night with solitary pipes and did not start upon his excursion until nearly one o'clock towards that small and ghostly hour he rose up from his chair took a key out of his pocket opened a locked cupboard and brought forth a sack a crowbar of convenient size a rope and chain another fishing tackle of that nature disposing these articles about him in skilful manner he bestowed a parting defiance on mrs cruncher extinguished the light and went out young jerry who had only made a feint of undressing when he went to bed was not long after his father under cover of the darkness he followed out of the room followed down the stairs followed down the court followed out into the streets he was in no uneasiness concerning his getting into the house again for it was full of lodgers and the door stood ajar all night impelled by a laudable ambition to study the art and mystery of his father's honest calling young jerry keeping as close to house-fronts walls and doorways as his eyes were close to one another held his honoured parent in view the honoured parent steering northward had not gone far when he was joined by another disciple of isaac walton and the two trudged on together within half an hour from the first starting they were beyond the winking lamps and the more than winking watchman and were out upon a lonely road another fisherman was picked up here and that so silently that if young jerry had been superstitious he might have supposed the second follower of the gentle craft to have all of a sudden split himself into two the three went on and young jerry went on until the three stopped under a bank overhanging the road 
upon the top of the bank was a low brick wall surmounted by an iron railing in the shadow of bank and wall the three turned out of the road and up a blind lane of which the wall there risen to some eight or ten feet high formed one side crouching down in a corner peeping up the lane the next object that young jerry saw was the form of his honoured parent pretty well defined against a watery and clouded moon nimbly scaling an iron gate he was soon over and then the second fisherman got over and then the third they all dropped softly on the ground within the gate and lay there a little listening perhaps then they moved away on their hands and knees it was now young jerry's turn to approach the gate which he did holding his breath crouching down again in a corner there and looking in he made out the three fishermen creeping through some rank grass and all the gravestones in the churchyard it was a large churchyard that they were in looking on like ghosts in white while the church tower itself looked on like the ghost of a monstrous giant they did not creep far before they stopped and stood upright and then they began to fish they fished with a spade at first presently the honoured parent appeared to be adjusting some instrument like a great corkscrew whatever tools they worked with they worked hard until the awful striking of the church clock so terrified young jerry that he made off with his hair as stiff as his father's but his long-cherished desire to know more about these matters not only stopped him in his running away but lured him back again they were still fishing perseveringly when he peeped in at the gate for a second time but now they seemed to have got a bite there was a screwing and complaining sound down below and their bent figures were strained as if by a weight by slow degrees the weight broke away the earth upon it and came to the surface young jerry very well knew what it would be but when he saw it and saw his honoured parent about to wrench it open he was so frightened being new to the sight that he made off again and never stopped until he had run a mile or more he would not have stopped then for anything less necessary than breath it being a spectral sort of race that he ran and one highly desirable to get to the end of he had a strong idea that the coffin he had seen was running after him and pictured as hopping on behind him bolt upright upon its narrow end always at the point of overtaking him and hopping on at his side perhaps taking his arm it was a pursuer to shun it was an inconsistent and ubiquitous fiend too for while it was making the whole night behind him dreadful he darted out into the roadway to avoid dark alleys fearful of it coming hopping out of them like a dropsical boy's kite without tail and wings it hid in doorways too rubbing its horrible shoulders against doors and drawing them up to its ears as if it were laughing it got into shadows on the road and lay cunningly on its back to trip him up all this time it was incessantly hopping on behind and gaining on him so that when the boy got to his own door he had reason for being half dead and even then it would not leave him but followed him upstairs with a bump on every stair scrambled into bed with him and bumped down dead and heavy on his breast when he fell asleep 
from his oppressed slumber young jerry in his closet was awakened after daybreak and before sunrise by the presence of his father in the family room something had gone wrong with him at least so young jerry inferred from the circumstance of his holding mrs cruncher by the ears and knocking the back of her head against the headboard of the bed i told you i would said mr cruncher and i did jerry 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 his wife implored you oppose yourself to the profit of the business said jerry and me and my partners suffer you was to honour and obey why the devil don't you i try to be a good wife jerry the poor woman protested with tears is it being a good wife to oppose your husband's business is it honouring your husband to dishonour his business is it obeying your husband to disobey him on the vital subject of his business you hadn't taken to the dreadful business then jerry it's enough for you retorted mr cruncher to be the wife of an honest tradesman and not to occupy your female mind with calculations when he took to his trade or when he didn't a honouring and obeying wife would let his trade alone altogether call yourself a religious woman if you're a religious woman give me a irreligious one you will have no more natural sense of duty than the bed of this here thames river as of a pile and similarly it must be knocked into you the altercation was conducted in a low tone of voice and terminated in the honest tradesman kicking off his clay-soiled boots and lying down at his length on the floor after taking a timid peep at him lying on his back with his rusty hands under his head for a pillow his son lay down too and fell asleep again there was no fish for breakfast and not much of anything else mr cruncher was out of spirits and out of temper and kept an iron pot lib by him as a projectile for the correction of mrs cruncher in case he should observe any symptoms of her saying grace he was brushed and washed at the usual hour and set off with his son to pursue his ostensible calling young jerry walking with the stall under his arm at his father's side along sunny and crowded fleet street was a very different young jerry from him of the previous night running home through darkness and solitude from his grim pursuer his cunning was fresh with the day and his qualms were gone with the night in which particulars it is not improbable that he had compeers in fleet street and the city of london that fine morning father said young jerry as they walked along taking care to keep at arm's length and to have the stall well between them what's a resurrection man mr cruncher came to a stop on the pavement before he answered how should i know i thought you knowed everything father said the artless boy hum well returned mr cruncher going on again and lifting off his hat to give his spikes free play he's a tradesman what's his goods father asked the brisk young jerry his goods said mr cruncher after turning it over in his mind is a branch of scientific goods persons bodies ain't it father asked the lively boy i believe it is something of the sort said mr cruncher oh father i should so like to be a resurrection man when i'm quite growed up 
Mr. Cruncher was soothed, but shook his head in a dubious and moral way. It depends upon how you develop your talents. Be careful to develop your talents, and ne'er to say no more than you can help to nobody, and there's no telling at the present time what you may not come to be fit for. As young Jerry, thus encouraged, went on a few yards in advance, to plant the stall in the shadow of the bar, Mr. Cruncher added to himself, "'Jerry, you honest tradesman, there's hope what that boy will yet be a blessing to you, and a recompense to you for his mother.'" End of Book 2, Chapter 14 Recording by Paul Adams, www.yawnguy.com Book Two, Chapter Fifteen of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Adams. Chapter Fifteen Knitting. There had been earlier drinking than usual in the wine shop of Monsieur Defarge. As early as six o'clock in the morning, sallow faces peeping through its barred windows had descried other faces within bending over measures of wine. Monsieur Defarge sold a very thin wine at the best of times, but it would seem to have been an unusually thin wine that he sold at this time. A sour wine, moreover, or a souring, for its influence on the mood of those who drank it was to make them gloomy. No vivacious bacchanalian flame leaped out of the pressed grape of Monsieur Defarge, but a smouldering fire that burnt in the dark lay hidden in the dregs of it. This had been the third morning in succession, on which there had been early drinking at the wine-shop of Monsieur Defarge. It had begun on Monday, and here was Wednesday come. There had been more of early brooding than drinking, for many men had listened and whispered and slunk about there from the time of the opening of the door, who could not have laid a piece of money on the counter to save their souls. These were to the full as interested in the place, however, as if they could have commanded whole barrels of wine, and they glided from seat to seat, and from corner to corner, swallowing talk in lieu of drink with greedy looks. Notwithstanding an unusual flow of company, the master of the wine-shop was not visible. He was not missed, for nobody who crossed the threshold looked for him, nobody asked for him, nobody wondered to see only Madame Defarge in her seat, presiding over the distribution of wine, with a bowl of battered small coins before her, as much defaced and beaten out of their original impress as the small coinage of humanity from whose ragged pocket they had come. A suspended interest and a prevalent absence of mind were perhaps observed by the spies who looked in at the wine-shop, as they looked in at every place, high and low, from the king's palace to the criminal's jail. Games at cards languished, players at dominoes musingly built towers with them, drinkers drew figures on the table with spilt drops of wine. Madame Defarge herself picked out the pattern on her sleeve with her toothpick, and saw and heard something inaudible and invisible a long way off. 
thus saint antoine in this vinous feature of his until midday it was high noontide when two dusty men passed through his streets and under his swinging lamps of whom one was monsieur defarge the other a mender of roads in a blue cap all adust and athirst the two entered the wine-shop their arrival had lighted a kind of fire in the breast of st antoine fast spreading as they came along which stirred and flickered in flames of faces at most doors and windows yet no one had followed them and no man spoke when they entered the wine-shop though the eyes of every man there were turned upon them good day gentlemen said monsieur defarge it may have been a signal for loosening the general tongue it elicited an answering chorus of good day it is bad weather gentlemen said defarge shaking his head upon which every man looked at his neighbour and then all cast down their eyes and sat silent except one man who got up and went out my wife said defarge aloud addressing madame defarge i have travelled certain leagues with this good mender of roads called jacques i met him by accident a day and a half's journey out of paris he is a good child this mender of roads called jacques give him to drink my wife a second man got up and went out madame defarge set wine before the mender of roads called jacques who doffed his blue cap to the company and drank in the breast of his blouse he carried some coarse dark bread he ate of this between whiles and sat munching and drinking near madame defarge's counter a third man got up and went out defarge refreshed himself with a draught of wine but he took less than was given to the stranger as being himself a man to whom it was no rarity and stood waiting until the countryman had made his breakfast he looked at no one present and no one now looked at him not even madame defarge who had taken up her knitting and was at work have you finished your repast friend he asked in due season yes thank you come then you shall see the apartment that i told you you could occupy it will suit you to a marvel out of the wine-shop into the street out of the street into a courtyard out of the courtyard up a steep staircase out of the staircase into a garret formerly the garret where a white-haired man sat on a low bench stooping forward and very busy making shoes no white-haired man was there now but the three men were there who had gone out of the wine-shop singly and between them and the white-haired man afar off was the one small link that they had once looked in at him through the chinks in the wall defarge closed the door carefully and spoke in a subdued voice jacques one jacques two jacques three this is the witness encountered by appointment by me jacques four he will tell you all speak jacques five the mender of roads blue cap in hand wiped his swarthy forehead with it and said where shall i commence monsieur commence was monsieur defarge's not unreasonable reply at the commencement i saw him then messieurs 
began the mender of roads. A year ago, this running summer, underneath the carriage of the Marquis, hanging by the chain, behold the manner of it, I leaving my work on the road, the sun going to bed, the carriage of the Marquis slowly ascending the hill, he hanging by the chain, like this. Again the mender of roads went through the whole performance, in which he ought to have been perfect by that time, seeing that it had been the infallible resource and indispensable entertainment of his village during a whole year. Jacques once struck in, and asked if he had ever seen the man before. "'Never,' answered the mender of roads, recovering his perpendicular. Jacques III demanded how he afterwards recognized him then. "'By his tall figure,' said the mender of roads, softly, and with his finger at his nose. "'When Monsieur the Marquis demands that evening, "'Say, what is he like?' I make response, "'Tall as a spectre.' "'You should have said, "'Short as a dwarf,' returned Jacques too. "'But what did I know? The deed was not then accomplished. Neither did he confide in me. Observe, under those circumstances even, I do not offer my testimony. Monsieur the Marquis indicates me with his finger, standing near our little fountain, and says, "'To me bring that rascal!' "'My faith, monsieur, I offer nothing.' "'He is right there, Jacques,' murmured Defarge, to him who had interrupted. "'Go on.' "'Good,' said the mender of roads, with an air of mystery. "'The tall man is lost, and he is sought. How many months? Nine, ten, eleven? "'No matter the number,' said Defarge. "'He is well hidden, but at last he is unluckily found. Go on.' I am again at work upon the hillside, and the sun is again about to go to bed. I am collecting my tools to descend to my cottage down in the village below, where it is already dark, when I raise my eyes and see coming over the hill six soldiers. In the midst of them is a tall man with his arms bound, tied to his sides, like this. With the aid of his indispensable cap, he represented a man with his elbows bound fast at his hips, with cords that were knotted behind him. "'I stand aside, messieurs, by my heap of stones, to see the soldiers and their prisoner pass, for it is a solitary road, that, where any spectacle is well worth looking at. And at first, as they approach, I see no more than that they are six soldiers with a tall man bound, and that they are almost black to my sight, except on the side of the sun going to bed, where they have a red edge, messieurs. Also, I see that their long shadows are on the hollow ridge on the opposite side of the road, and are on the hill above it, and are like the shadows of giants. Also, I see that they are covered with dust, and that the dust moves with them as they come, tramp, tramp. But when they advance quite near to me, I recognize the tall man, and he recognizes me. Ah, but he will be well content to precipitate himself over the hillside once again, as on the evening when he and I first encountered, close to the same spot. He described it as if he were there, and it was evident that he saw it vividly, perhaps he had not seen much in his life. I do not show the soldiers that I recognize the tall man. He does not show the soldiers that he recognizes me. We do it, and we know it, with our eyes. 
"'Come on,' says the chief of that company, pointing to the village. "'Bring him fast to his tomb,' and they bring him faster. I follow. His arms are swelled because of being bound so tight. His wooden shoes are large and clumsy, and he is lame. Because he is lame, and consequently slow, they drive him with their guns like this.' He imitated the action of a man's being impelled forward by the butt-ends of muskets. As they descend the hill like madmen running a race, he falls. They laugh and pick him up again. His face is bleeding and covered with dust, but he cannot touch it. Thereupon they laugh again. They bring him into the village. All the village runs to look. They take him past the mill and up to the prison. All the village sees the prison gate open in the darkness of the night and swallow him like this. He opened his mouth as wide as he could and shut it with the sounding snap of his teeth. Observant of his unwillingness to mar the effect by opening it again, Defarge said, "'Go on, Jacques.' All the village, pursued the mender of roads, on tiptoe, and in a low voice, withdraws. All the village whispers by the fountain. All the village sleeps. All the village dreams of that unhappy one, within the locks and bars of the prison on the crag, and never to come out of it except to perish. In the morning, with my tools upon my shoulder, eating my morsel of black bread as I go, I make a circuit by the prison on my way to my work. There I see him, high up behind the bars of the lofty iron cage, bloody and dusty as last night, looking through. He has no hand free to wave to me. I dare not call to him. He regards me like a dead man." Defarge and the three glanced darkly at one another. The looks of all of them were dark, repressed, and revengeful as they listened to the countryman's story. The manner of all of them, while it was secret, was authoritative too. They had the air of a rough tribunal, Jacques one and two sitting on the old pallet bed, each with his chin resting on his hand and his eyes intent on the road-mender, Jacques three equally intent on one knee behind them, with his agitated hand always gliding over the network of fine nerves about his mouth and nose, Defarge standing between them and the narrator whom he had stationed in the light of the window by turns looking from him to them and from them to him go on jacques said defarge he remains up there in his iron cage some days the village looks at him by stealth for it is afraid but it always looks up from a distance at the prison on the crag and in the evening when the work of the day is achieved and it assembles to gossip at the fountain all faces are turned towards the prison formerly they were turned towards the posting-house now they are turned towards the prison they whisper at the fountain that although condemned to death he will not be executed they say that petitions have been presented in paris showing that he was enraged and made mad by the death of his child they say that a petition has been presented to the king himself what do i know it is possible perhaps yes perhaps no 
Listen then, Jacques, number one of that name sternly interposed, know that a petition was presented to the king and queen, all here yourself excepted, saw the king take it, in his carriage in the street, sitting beside the queen. It is Defarge who you see here, who, at the hazard of his life, darted out before the horses with the petition in his hand. "'And once again, listen, Jacques,' said the kneeling number three, his fingers ever wandering over and over those fine nerves, with a strikingly greedy air, as if he hungered for something that was neither food nor drink. The guard, horse and foot, surrounded the petitioner, and struck him blows, you hear?' "'I hear, messieurs. Go on, then,' said Defarge again on the other hand they whisper at the fountain resumed the countryman that he is brought down into our country to be executed on the spot and that he will very certainly be executed they even whisper that because he has slain monseigneur and because monseigneur is the father of his tenants serfs what you will he will be executed as a parricide one old man says at the fountain that his right hand armed with the knife will be burnt off before his face that into wounds which will be made in his arms his breast and his legs there will be poured boiling oil melted lead hot resin wax and sulphur finally that he will be torn limb from limb by four strong horses that old man says all this was actually done to a prisoner who made an attempt on the life of the late king louis fifteen but how do i know if he lies i am not a scholar listen once again then jacques said the man with the restless hand and the craving air the name of that prisoner was damion and it was all done in open day in the open streets of this city of paris and nothing was more noticed in the vast concourse that saw it done than the crowd of ladies of quality and fashion who were full of eager attention to the last to the last jacques prolonged until nightfall when he had lost two legs and an arm and still breathed and it was done why how old are you thirty-five said the mender of roads who looked sixty it was done when you were more than ten years old you might have seen it enough said defarge with grim impatience long live the devil go on well some whisper this some whisper that they speak of nothing else even the fountain appears to fall to that tune at length on sunday night when all the village is asleep come soldiers winding down from the prison and their guns ring on the stones of the little street workmen dig workmen hammer soldiers laugh and sing in the morning by the fountain there is raised a gallows forty feet high poisoning the water the mender of roads looked through rather than at the low ceiling and pointed as if he saw the gallows somewhere in the sky all work is stopped all assembled there nobody leads the cows out the cows are there with the rest at midday the roll of drums soldiers have marched into the prison in the night and he is in the midst of many soldiers he is bound as before and in his mouth there is a gag tied so with a tight string making him look almost as if he laughed he suggested it by creasing his face with his two thumbs from the corners of his mouth to his ears 
on the top of the gallows is fixed the knife blade upwards with its point in the air he is hanged there forty feet high and is left hanging poisoning the water they looked at one another as he used his blue cap to wipe his face on which the perspiration had started afresh while he recalled the spectacle it is frightful messieurs how can the women and the children draw water who can gossip of an evening under that shadow under it have i said when i left the village monday evening as the sun was going to bed and looked back from the hill the shadow struck across the church across the mill across the prison seemed to strike across the earth messieurs to where the sky rests upon it the hungry man gnawed one of his fingers as he looked at the other three, and his finger quivered with the craving that was on him. That's all, messieurs. I left at sunset, as I had been warned to do, and I walked on, that night and half next day, until I met, as I was warned I should, this comrade. With him I came on, now riding and now walking, through the rest of yesterday and through last night, and here you see me after a gloomy silence the first jacques said good you have acted and recounted faithfully will you wait for us a little outside the door very willingly said the mender of roads whom defarge escorted to the top of the stairs and leaving seated there returned the three had risen and their heads were together when he came back to the garret how say you jacques demanded number one to be registered to be registered as doomed to destruction, returned Defarge. Magnificent, croaked the man with the craving. The chateau and all the race, inquired the first. The chateau and all the race, returned Defarge. Extermination! The hungry man repeated in a rapturous croak, Magnificent! And began gnawing another finger. "'Are you sure,' asked Jacques too of Defarge, "'that no embarrassment can arise from our manner of keeping the register? "'Without doubt it is safe, for no one beyond ourselves can decipher it. "'But shall we always be able to decipher it? "'Or, I ought to say, will she?' "'Jacques,' returned Defarge, drawing himself up, "'if Madame, my wife, undertook to keep the register in her memory alone, "'she would not lose a word of it, nor a syllable of it.' knitted in her own stitches and her own symbols it will always be as plain to her as the sun confide in madame defarge it would be easier for the weakest poltroon that lives to erase himself from existence than to erase one letter of his name or crimes from the knitted register of madame defarge there was a murmur of confidence and approval and then the man who hungered asked is this rustic to be sent back soon i hope so he is very simple is he not a little dangerous he knows nothing said defarge at least nothing more than would easily elevate himself to a gallows of the same height i charge myself with him let him remain with me i will take care of him and set him on the road he wishes to see the fine world the king the queen and court let him see them on sunday What? exclaimed the hungry man staring is it a good sign that he wishes to see royalty and nobility jacques 
said Defarge. Judiciously show a cat milk if you wish her to thirst for it. Judiciously show a dog his natural prey if you wish him to bring it down one day. Nothing more was said, and the mender of roads, being found already dozing on the topmost stair, was advised to lay himself down on the pallet bed and take some rest. He needed no persuasion, and was soon asleep. Worse quarters than Defarge's wine-shop could easily have been found in Paris for a provincial slave of that degree. Saving for a mysterious dread of Madame, by which he was constantly haunted, his life was very new and agreeable. But Madame sat all day at her counter, so expressly unconscious of him, and so particularly determined not to perceive that his being there had any connection with anything below the surface, that he shook in his wooden shoes whenever his eye lighted on her. For he contended with himself that it was impossible to foresee what that lady might pretend next, and he felt assured that if she should take it into her brightly ornamented head to pretend that she had seen him do a murder, and afterwards flay the victim, she would infallibly go through with it until the play was played out. Therefore, when Sunday came, the mender of roads was not enchanted, though he said he was, to find that Madame was to accompany Monsieur and himself to Versailles. It was additionally disconcerting to have Madame knitting all the way there in a public conveyance. It was additionally disconcerting yet to have Madame in the crowd in the afternoon, still with her knitting in her hands, as the crowd waited to see the carriage of the King and Queen. "'You work hard, Madame,' said a man near her. "'Yes,' answered Madame Defarge, "'I have a good deal to do.' "'What do you make, Madame?' Many things, for instance. For instance, returned Madame Defarge composedly, shrouds. The man moved a little further away as soon as he could, and the mender of roads fanned himself with his blue cap, feeling it mightily close and oppressive. If he needed a king and queen to restore him, he was fortunate in having his remedy at hand, for soon the large-faced king and the fair-faced queen came in their golden coach, attended by the shining bull's-eye of their court, a glittering multitude of laughing ladies and fine lords, and in jewels and silks and powder and splendour, and elegantly spurning figures and handsomely disdainful faces of both sexes. The mender of roads bathed himself so much to his temporary intoxication that he cried, Long live the king! Long live the queen! Long live everybody and everything! As if he had never heard of ubiquitous Jacques in his time. Then there were gardens, courtyards, terraces, fountains, green banks, more king and queen, more bullseye, more lords and ladies, more long lived they all, until he absolutely wept with sentiment. During the whole of this scene, which lasted some three hours, he had plenty of shouting and weeping and sentimental company, and throughout Defarge held him by the collar, as if to restrain him from flying at the objects of his brief devotion and tearing them to pieces. "'Bravo!' said Defarge, clapping him on the back when it was over like a patron. "'You're a good boy!' 
The mender of roads was now coming to himself, and was mistrustful of having made a mistake in his late demonstrations. But no. "'You are the fellow we want,' said Defarge in his ear. "'You make these fools believe that it will last for ever. Then they are the more insolent, and it is the nearer ended.' "'Hey!' cried the mender of roads reflectively. "'That's true.' these fools know nothing while they despise your breath and would stop it for ever and ever in you or in a hundred like you rather than in one of their own horses or dogs they only know what your breath tells them let it deceive them then a little longer it cannot deceive them too much madame defarge looked superciliously at the client and nodded in confirmation as to you said she you would shout and shed tears for anything if it made a show and a noise say would you not truly madame i think so for the moment if you were shown a great heap of dolls and were set upon them to pluck them to pieces and despoil them for your own advantage you would pick out the richest and gayest say would you not truly yes madame Yes, and if you were shown a flock of birds unable to fly, and were set upon them to strip them of their feathers for your own advantage, you would set upon the birds of the finest feathers, would you not? It is true, madame. You have seen both dolls and birds to-day, said madame Defarge, with a wave of her hand towards the place where they had last been apparent. Now, go home. End of chapter 15 of Book 2, recording by Paul Adams, www.yawnguy.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.